Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. As you well know, the Bible teaches that the apex of all that we're about is the subject of love. We are told in the Scriptures that we're to love God, and we're to love one another, we're to love our family, and we're to love our neighbor as ourself, and even that we are to love our enemies. Now, somewhere along the line, it would seem that the Scripture should pause and uh, define and describe love for us. And it does just that. If there is any passage in the Scripture that describes love, it is 1 Corinthians 13, and that's become known as the love chapter in the Bible. But many have come to that passage and recognized that um, while it is a description of love, technically a definition of love is not there. There are other passages in the Scripture on love. The little book of 1 John has a great deal to say about it. In my opinion, the subject of the whole book of Philemon is love. But in all of my study of the Scriptures, the one passage that I think comes closer than any other to defining love is Romans chapter 12. And interestingly enough, it is that passage that also gives us some detailed instructions on both how to love one another and how to love our neighbor. Will you turn with me then to Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 9. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says... Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is good, abhor, excuse me, what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
we have been moving chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, and sometimes verse by verse through the book of Romans. When we come to Romans chapter 12, Paul takes a moment and discusses the whole subject of spiritual gifts. And then, immediately after that, he plunges into a discussion of love. The same thing, by the way, happens in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 12, he discusses in detail the subject of spiritual gifts. And chapter 13 is, as you know, on the subject of love. There is a difference, however. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, almost everything he says is applied to the exercise of spiritual gifts. Whereas in Romans chapter 12, while some of what he says may indeed apply to the exercising of spiritual gifts within the assembly, he goes way beyond that and talks about what love is, he talks about how to love fellow believers, and then he talks about how to love fellow men. For example, in verse 9, he says simply, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. We looked at that verse in our last study in this passage, and I suggested that that came pretty close to a definition of love itself that he is saying, let love be without hypocrisy or without pretense. In other words, this is true love. He then says in verse 9, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. I suggested that abhor means to hate, of course, and to cling means to be glued to. But that the word evil could also be translated that which does injury or hurts somebody else. And the word good is sometimes translated in the New Testament with the idea of doing that which is kind. From those observations, I drew the conclusion that verse 9 could be handled in such a way as to suggest that true love hates to hurt and is hungry to help. That is, as far as I can tell, as close to a biblical definition of love as you will find in the Scripture. I also suggested that later in the book of Romans, Paul says, love works no evil toward its neighbor. Therefore, love fulfills the law. That's half of the definition. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are only two positive characteristics of love and the first is, love is kind. Romans 13.10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13 are saying precisely what I'm suggesting for Romans 12.9. Namely, that true love hates to see someone hurt, it hates to hurt, and it is hungry to help. Now from there, Paul discusses how this true love should be manifested toward fellow believers. He does that in verses 10 through 13. We've already looked at those verses, and I suggested that there are three basic things Paul is saying there, that we are to prefer one another in verses 10 through 12, that we are to present necessities to the needy in verse 13, and that we're to practice hospitality also 
in verse 13. Now, what I want us to do today is this. Beginning at verse 14 and going through the end of the chapter, Paul is still discussing love, only now, it seems, he shifts to loving your fellow man. Many have come to this passage and suggested that that is the case. Now, some have argued that it's not quite the case. For example, in verse 16, he says, be of the same man toward one another, and that seems to imply toward other believers. But there is simply no doubt that the thrust of the passage, most of what's in the rest of the passage, is talking about how you love others. For example, he says in verse 14, Blessed are the, bless those who persecute you, meaning those outside the faith. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Uh, seems to imply that he's talking about unbelievers. As well as verse 20, therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. So that most commentators have come to this part of the passage and said that it is talking about how you love your fellow man. And yet there are those who insist that this could also apply to how you love believers. Maybe you're a believer could come become your enemy. One commentator had a clever solution. He suggested that um, if this is talking about uh, the way you love a believer, it is the way you love the believer to have an impact on the unbeliever. Be all that as it may, I'm going to suggest that at least the bulk of what is here would primarily apply to how you love your fellow man, not just a fellow believer. Now, how are you to do that? Well, in verses 14 to 21, there are five commands. Now, that's in stark contrast to what happened in verses 10 to 13, which was filled with participles and the like. But in verses 14 to 21, he gives us five commands, all dealing with love, and which I'm suggesting primarily apply to loving those outside the faith. Let's look at them. The first one is in verse 14. He says... Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. When you are being persecuted, there is hate and hostility being directed toward you. And the natural tendency is to want to curse your enemy. If you're a Christian and are aware that you shouldn't do things like that, Maybe you would get theological and suggest, well, God curses people, so we'll just pray he'll do it. Now, Paul says that should not be your attitude. Rather, he suggests that you should bless those who persecute you. You should bless and not curse. The word translated bless means to speak well of. It means to praise. So if you have someone who is an enemy, if you have someone who is persecuting you and you want to love your neighbor as yourself and you want to love your enemy, then here is the formula. You should speak well of them, praise them, and not curse them. A famous general during the Civil War named Lee was once asked by President Lincoln what he thought of someone. And in the most glowing terms, 
General Lee told him he praised that man. General Lee had an aide with him, and after the meeting with the president, the aide said, why did you talk like that about that fellow? Don't you know he's your enemy? General Lee replied, yes, but the president did not ask his opinion of me. He asked my opinion of him. He gave a good report. He accentuated the positive. He spoke well of someone who was speaking ill of him. If you want to love, and you want to love all, then you will find yourself in the situation where you have to love someone who is persecuting you. And what you should do in that case, according to the Scripture, is bless them, speak well of them, praise them when that is appropriate. The second command that he gives us is in verse 15. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. If the first thing that we are to do is bless persecutors, the second thing we are to do is to be sensitive to all men. This verse says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we are to weep with those who weep. That is, we should be sensitive. When someone else is rejoicing, we should enter into their celebration. And when someone is in pain and they are weeping, we should not celebrate, but we should enter into their problem and their pain and weep with them. I would like to suggest that um, this should be taken very literally. I don't know why it shouldn't be that we should not literally rejoice with those who are rejoicing and literally weep with those who weep. I remember hearing this even preached when I was a very young Christian and thinking to myself, how could you ever do that? How could you ever just turn on tears? When he's sitting in front of you and weeping, uh, how could you just all of a sudden start crying with them? Seemed to me to be very artificial and superficial. Over the years, I have experienced this. I didn't think, I've got to weep now because the person in front of me is weeping and the Bible said weep. But as I have grown in the Lord and as I have had people sitting in front of me who were weeping, I have caught myself on more than one occasion literally able to weep with them. Of course, it's easy to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But I think if you are where the Lord wants you to be, and a person is in front of you weeping, you will find yourself literally weeping with them. So what is he telling us? He's telling us that we need to be sensitive to where people are, that if they are rejoicing, we need to be sensitive to that. And if they are hurting, we need to be sensitive to that as well. That's what love does. If what you want is the best for the other person, then it will be easy for you to rejoice with them because you want what is best for them and weep with them because you want what is best for them and when that's not happening, you will feel the pain that they feel. There's a third suggestion. He says in the next verse, verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. 
Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. In short, he is telling us that we are to be unified in our loving toward others. So that he says in verse 16, be of the same mind one toward one another. I don't think he is insisting that we have to all think the same thing about which political party we vote for or which ball team we root for. I think he is saying in this context that we need to be unified in our commitment to loving one another. He tells us in that regard to not be high-minded, don't be haughty, don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own opinion. This verse is awesome. <laughs> if you were going to be wise in the world, in the opinion of most, what would you do? Well, you wouldn't waste your time with people that couldn't uh, benefit you somehow, right? I mean, you would spend your time with the high and the mighty. You would spend your time with people of influence and wealth. Now, that is being wise in your own opinion. And let me just tell you that that is the way the world operates. And unfortunately, that's the way all too many churches operate. Sad to say, it's the way all too many in the ministry operate. I've even been given advice by other pastors. You know, find the influential people and spend your time with them. Find the wealthy people in your congregation and make sure you get to know them. Paul says, don't be wise in your own opinion. Don't set your mind on high things. That is in direct contrast to what most do. But here's what he says. Associate with the humble. You want to go love others? Then go find somebody that uh, is humble. Maybe they're not rich. Maybe they're poor. And maybe they um, aren't, don't have a place of influence. Maybe they're just lowly. And Paul says if you're going to love like God wants you to love, then what you need to do is go spend time with the janitor, not the president. I think it is when you get into a church and you want to get ahead, or you get into a company and you want to get ahead, that you're going to spend all of your time with the high. And in church, that forms cliques and the like. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Go spend time with the nobodies of this world. Go spend time with the humble. Uh, I think that uh, true love is without hypocrisy and without partiality. That you would be willing to spend time with both the up and ins and the down and outs. When Michelangelo was at the very height 
of his career. He spent some time in the city of Florence, and of course all of the influential people of the town wanted to be in the presence of Michelangelo. He was once walking down the street when a great crowd gathered. They all wanted to be near him, and a little boy came up and wanted him to draw a picture, and the crowd pushed the little boy away. And Michelangelo said, no, wait a minute. He sat down on the curb, took that little piece of paper and the pencil, and drew a picture for the little boy, and then signed his name. The great Michelangelo, at the height of his career, sat down on a curb and drew a little picture for a small boy. Paul says, associate with the humble. Don't get so high and mighty in your own opinion that you think you're going to spend all of your time with the people at the top. You just need once in a while to go spend some time with the people at the bottom. I heard a man recently talk on a tape in which he said that at a management conference, uh, an executive from a rather large company shocked the audience when he said, that the only way he could stand being executive of the company is that every once in a while he had to have lunch with the janitor. I think there is some real wisdom to that. He really shocked them all when he said, excuse me for not staying after my speech, but I have a lunch and a date with the janitor, and he left. Is that any appeal to you? That has great appeal to me. Should we associate with the humble? Or we always got to be with the high and the mighty. Paul said real love is going to be unified in your commitment to love one another both high and low. There's a fourth suggestion. He says in the next verse, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. The first suggestion in verse 14 is that you bless those who persecute you. The second suggestion is that you be sensitive to people. The third is that you be unified in your commitment to loving all men. And the fourth suggestion is negative. It's do not avenge yourselves. Do not retaliate. He says in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says that you should think no evil. That is, you should not take evil into account in your dealings with other people. Love does not keep score is the point of the verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 6. But the point of the verse in Romans 12, 17 is that you don't even the score. Love doesn't keep score and love doesn't even the score. So when someone throws a sharp word at you, you do not respond or repay or retaliate with a sharp word. When someone has seriously wounded you, you do not respond or repay or retaliate with another serious wound. Love simply does not retaliate. Rather, he says 
in verse 17, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. Rather than retaliate, what you need to do is um, you need to do that which is good for other people. Do good toward them. We're going to say more about that later. Then he says in verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So that the whole thrust of these two verses is don't retaliate. That is, the whole bent of your heart is not that I am going to get even, that I am going to resent or repay in any way. It is rather that I'm going to do good and I'm going to be at peace. One observation. I can't help but point out in passing that he says in verse 18 that uh, as much as lieth within you, you should be at peace with all men. I think that verse implies that it may not be within you. Now, you ought to do that, but it may not be within you to do that, and at that point, you might have to take up a defense of yourself. Many years ago, when Emerson was a famous literary figure and so was Thoreau, Thoreau objected to paying the poll tax because the state was supporting slavery. As a result, he was arrested and put in jail. So his friend Emerson came to see him. And when he got to the jail, he said to Thoreau, what are you doing in there? And Thoreau said, what are you doing out there? Point well taken. There comes a time when a Christian must stand up and say, enough is enough is enough. It is the bent of the believer to be at peace with all men. But that is simply not always possible. So Paul says, as much as lieth within you, be at peace with all men, recognizing it may not be possible. There's one last suggestion, and that is, he says in the rest of these verses, beginning at verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. In verses 17 and 18, he is saying, don't retaliate. In verses 19 through 21, he is saying, do not avenge yourselves. Rather, give place to wrath. The point being, if someone has done you an injustice, don't you lift a finger to get punishment or justice out of them. Rather, let God do it. The implication of this text, as well as the clear teaching of the rest of Scripture, is that ultimately justice will be done in the world. For every injustice, there will be a judgment. Believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and they will give an account of everything they've done. And unbelievers will stand at the great white throne judgment, not to mention the judgment of God that could take place in this life. So any time you have an enemy who has done any kind of an injustice to you, do not retaliate and do not seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay, 
Paul says. And when he does, he is quoting Deuteronomy 32, 35. God said, I will have vengeance, so don't you do it. In support of this contention, one of the Proverbs. In verse 20, he says, Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him a drink, and in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. He is quoting from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. And he is saying, look, if you let God take care of the punishment, then you are free to go show mercy. This is an incredible concept, one the flesh would never think of, one the flesh has a hard time with, I might add. And that is that when someone has hurt you, you do not retaliate. You do not seek vengeance. You let God take care of that. And once having dismissed with the punishment end of the spectrum, you are free to show mercy, which is precisely what the Apostle Paul says you are to do. He says that in showing mercy, in giving him food to eat if he is hungry, in giving him something to drink if he is thirsty, you are heaping coals of fire on his head. Now, what does that mean? That's a tough phrase, frankly, and there are three possible meanings. One is that you are going to make his punishment more severe by showing him acts of mercy. A second possibility is that when he finds coals of fire on his head, he is going to be remorseful. He is going to be ashamed. The third interpretation that commentators have given to this is that it means that you will thereby subdue him, and whereas he was your enemy, he will become your friend. I can be very candid with you. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure which one of those is right. I think there may be a little bit of truth in all of them. That if um, you did not try to seek revenge or vengeance in any way, and you did acts of mercy, and the person kept persecuting you or hurting you in some way, then his sin and his crime becomes all the more serious and hideous. And in that sense, there is going to be a more severe judgment. On the other hand, that can't be your attitude because what he said in this passage is you're to bless them, you're to speak well of them. In verse 20, you're to feed them and give them something to drink. So that can't be your motive or your attitude when you do this. The other interpretations are also true. I think if you had an enemy and you did him a kindness and you showed him mercy, it would be to his shame. And I also think that there are cases where people have been won by those acts of mercy. So I think all of those interpretations, one way or another, may be involved uh, in this passage. Someone named E.E. E. Shellhammer, has said this. Jesus has said it not, but it has given us an example of how to behave when misunderstood. When your opinion is ridiculed, 
A sign of true greatness is to remain silent. When your qualifications are being discussed, pro and con, you grow tall in the estimation of others if you show a holy indifference to the outcome. When you have to stand alone and no influential person seeks your company or dares to become an intimate friend, this is when you become closely related to Jesus Christ. When you are quick to fight your own battles, Jesus steps aside and gives you the job. But if you refuse to defend yourself, he will defend you better than any shrewd lawyer could ever do. End of quote. You step aside. Let God take care of the vengeance. You be like Christ. If need be, suffer in silence and be gracious and merciful to even your enemy. Converted Hindu lady in India had a husband that was very antagonistic toward her Christian faith. And one day a missionary said to her, what do, your, what do you do when your husband gets upset and angry at your Christianity and starts giving you a hard time? And she said, it's very simple. I cook better meals and sweep the floor cleaner. That is love in the face of hostility. Paul concludes by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The point he is making is that you should not be overcome by the evil coming at you. Throughout this passage, he's talked about those who persecute you. He's talked about your enemies that you are to feed and give drink to. Those who have hurt you, he speaks in verse 17 of those who have done evil toward you. So evil has come at you. Do not be overcome by it. But the point he is making is do good. And that is precisely what he said in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. So don't be overcome by the evil so that you become angry and bitter and hateful and hostile. But rather, you overcome that evil by doing good to that person who is doing evil to you. Sweep the floor a little cleaner. Bake a better cake. Fix a better meal. In so doing, you'll... Uh, heap coals of fire on his head, whatever that means. Now, to sum it all up, what Paul is saying in this passage is that true love, verse 9, hates to hurt, and it is hungry to help. We've looked today at how that applies to fellow men, not just fellow believers. True love blesses when you're persecuted. It's sensitive to all people. It's unified. It's committed to loving all equally, not just the high or those that can benefit you in some way. It does not retaliate, and it does not seek revenge. Let me conclude by pointing out <laughs> we're all for love, right? 
I mean, it's a rare individual that's against love. So how could you argue with what I'm teaching? I mean, how could you argue with it? It's verse by verse right out of the Scripture, right? So let me tell you what we do. This passage is talking about the true blue thing, true love, the real commodity. And it starts in verse 9 by warning us not to practice sham love. So what do you do when you're confronted with a situation and somebody is persecuting you and you're receiving evil from someone and you don't want to practice true love? You can't say, well, I don't believe in love. We don't do that. So let me get at what's really going on in this passage. What do we do? Let me tell you what my experience is. My observation, after many years of dealing with people who've experienced all kinds of injustice, is that when they don't want to practice true love, but don't want to deny that that's what should be done, they start screaming, I just want justice. I just want what's right. They'll go for justice every time. Many years ago, I met a lady who constantly screamed her head off about her rights. It took me a little while to figure out what was going on. And since then, I've observed it in numerous other people. And what she ought to have been doing was figuring out how to love everybody including her enemies, she was screaming, I just want what is right. May I submit to you that God will do what's right. It is your job to do what is loving. I would go one step further and suggest that if you insist on your rights, it's only going to be to your detriment. The man I quoted a moment ago suggested that uh, if you're going to seek vengeance, the Lord's going to step aside and let you have the job. You'll botch it every time. It'll cost you more in the long run. And you won't get the pleasure and the satisfaction of having the Lord do it, and He knows how to really do it right. So you're a whole lot better just to back off. It'll cost you more in the long run. Many years ago in the state of Illinois, a rich man had a bill owed to him totaling $2.50. That was a lot of money in those days. The poor man couldn't pay him or wouldn't pay him. And so the rich man sought an attorney he hired none other than Abraham Lincoln to go settle this debt. Mr. Lincoln heard him out and said, I'll take the case for $10. He said, you got it, here it is. Then Mr. Lincoln went to see the poor man and he said, look, would you settle this case for $5? If I gave you $5, would you settle with him? Would you go pay him? He said, sure. So he gave him five bucks. He went to the rich man, gave him two fifty. So the rich man got his 250, the poor man got 250, and Abe Lincoln got 250. 
but it cost the rich man three times as much as if he'd let the whole thing drop. Now, what I'm telling you is you can choose to love and that's costly. It is costly. But my plea is that it's more costly if you don't. Francis of Assisi had a man come to him once and say, you're never going to believe what happened. That dirty, rotten crook stopped me on the road and stole my shoes. And Francis says, well, quick, run after him, catch him, and give him your socks. <laughs> now, that's love. From a biblical point of view, it doesn't seek what is right and justice. It does what is right. It loves. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you dealt with us in love and grace and mercy and not just strict justice. We thank you that your son satisfied your justice when he died and paid for our sin so that you could be free to love. And we thank you that you will take care of justice in the world so that we can be free to be like your son and love. His name I pray. Amen.